0: You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of
1: movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. We're really excited to dig right into our fourth film discussion. Marty, can you believe we're already at movie number four? Boy, time has really flown this year. It's kind of crazy. I still feel like we're in our trial run, but I guess after this long, I feel like our show's not going anywhere, and I kind of enjoy that. It's been such a pleasure getting to talk to all of you about some of our favorite films and some of our favorite film scores, and it's something that we hope to continue doing. The next movie in our series, of discussions is Amelie and this really marks several firsts for the show mm-hmm. uh, it's our first film from
0: the 21st century
1: right 2001 And it's our first non-English language film. That's true. And it's also our first R-rated movie. So (laughs) children are not allowed. This is going to start getting pretty obscene, pretty graphic. So does that mean that
0: the podcast (laughs) needs to become a more explicit show also?
1: You know, the thing is, I don't think so. Because even in the commentary, if you hear any excerpts from the movie, I don't know how they would rate sound, but I I think you could probably get away with it. Maybe we'll have to do a little bit of censoring, but we're still going to try to keep this podcast podcast clean because I think that's just our nature. This is an exciting departure. If you've noticed our little strategy, stratagem, now, <laughs> yeah, our stratagem. We have one more kind of popcorn movie followed by a slightly more intellectual film not to say that Raiders and Back to the Future aren't incredibly artistic in their own right or that Um, Vertigo
0: anomaly aren't
1: entertaining yeah absolutely and so we wanted to do something that musically wouldn't be competing at all with Back to the Future and Alan Silvestri's incredible music because it's kind of a tough act to follow and so we wanted to do something completely different that highlighted a different era a different culture and another excellent and fantastic composer it's also a first in that it highlights
0: sort of unusual Usual working relationship between director and composer right the film was directed incredibly we might add by Jean-Pierre Jeunet and its score was composed by Jan Tiersen but this was not a traditional operation you could say right I believe it was Jeunet's assistant who introduced him to the music of Jan Tiersen, and he was immediately very taken with it. They apparently got together. Tiersen agreed to compose some material for the film, but also let Jeanette know that he had access to any of his back catalog of instrumental music. So we have a very unique score here in Amelie where we have original pieces of music composed for the film and licensed music from that same composer.
1: We know there are plenty of film scores that are comprised entirely of pre-existing or needle-dropped music. We haven't really decided if we're ever going to get into a soundtrack like that. I think it's only fair at some point to touch on something like that. Sure. Because really, like we say every week, Underscore is a podcast of music and stories. It's not like there's just one way to score a film but we kind of wanted to step our toe in the water with an example like this where it's somewhere in between using pre-existing music and newly composed pieces and also We wanted to continue the tradition that we've been having of just excellent music and fantastic themes. I want to talk a little bit about Jan Tiersen as a composer. He's a very interesting individual, had a little bit of classical training in violin and the piano, but he's really this multi-instrumentalist. Often, his scores will feature a very eclectic variety of instruments. And in the score to Amelie, I'm pretty sure almost every instrument sound you hear, with the exception of you know the orchestral elements, is all performed by Mr. Tearsen himself. He's a really interesting musical
0: figure where there's clearly classical sort of inspirations and vernacular, but he was also very much as a teenager inspired by punk rock. And the sort of post-punk period was really into bands like the Stooges, and then later Joy Division and he ended up picking up the guitar as he was a teenager and getting into rock songwriting which is something that he's still involved in to this day there's actually a really interesting uh, NPR Tiny Desk concert from not too long ago with Jan Tiersen and his band and you can actually hear him sing as well in English.
1: The really interesting thing about Jan Tiersen is the way that he's able to bring all of these influences together. He has this air of sophistication in his music that wraps together the classical influences from composers like Eric Satie and Frederick Chopin with kind of minimalism and like you mentioned pop music, rock music and specifically what we're going to notice in this score is the classics style of French accordion music, that bal musette tradition, which we hear a lot of times in films, particularly French films, or even in American films that are trying to evoke a French sound. It can actually become kind of a cliche in certain instances. But what's great about the score to Amelie is he kind of uses that as the palette of the score and writes themes within that fabric, and they all kind of work around that. And
0: like you mentioned, there's such an eclectic instrumentation throughout the score, Mm -hmm. which I think also helps to sort of undercut any sense of cliche that we might come to expect with a very waltz centric French score.
1: Well, Marty, <laughs> before I'd ever seen this film or heard its music, you described Jan Tierson to me is it's like Eric Satie if he was more like Koji Kondo, <laughs> which to me that was the perfect way of saying I have to see this, because Koji Kondo, for those of you who don't know, is the fabulous video game composer, really kind of the godfather of game music, wrote the scores to, for a number of years, pretty much every Super Mario Brothers game, every Legend of Zelda game, up until probably the late 1990s. He's one of our personal favorite composers and one of the inceptions of our brother podcast, the Super Mercado Brothers. But I think the reason why Marty mentioned that is because Jan Tiersen uses a lot of beautiful, jazzy kind of extended 7th and ninth chords, but it's all very melodic and tuneful, and it kind of grabs you right away with these catchy earworms. And it's really perfect for film because he creates these themes that you attach to characters and attach to emotions.
0: What I so enjoy about the score to Amelie, as maybe unconventionally constructed as it was, particularly the pieces that had been written before the film, it's interesting to imagine the type of recording artist that Jan Tiersen was. A mostly instrumental songwriter Writing in this quasi-classical Very eclectic idiom Yet he had not written for any films Prior to this It's almost as though there was a destiny For this project to come together
1: The word destiny is very apt Because the original title of Amelie Translates to the fabulous destiny Of Amelie Poulain, And that's our character's name But it kind of also establishes that The story is really almost like a Roald doll story It's very fantastic And almost like a fable or a storybook The last thing I wanted to mention About Jan Tiersen specifically As it relates to this film This is the first time on Underscore Where we're focusing on A film whose composer was chosen Specifically for His individual sound As opposed to a pre-existing collaborative Relationship. In the case of John Williams and Steven Spielberg Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann Alan Silvestri and Robert Zemeckis They had all worked together and had a previously existing working collaboration. So there was almost no question that they were going to go to those composers. In the, and the films that we've discussed. Right? right, and they would present them with the challenge of scoring that film and finding its identity. In this case, it was different. They had the identity of the film and needed to know what music could accompany it. When they sought out Jan Tiersen, it was really about capturing his style and the type of music that he had already demonstrated in several of his instrumental albums.
0: Without further ado, let's dive into our subject for today's episode. The central theme of the film, we could say the theme of Amelie, is actually titled Valse d'Amelie. Amelie is Waltz. For anyone that's seen the film, you might have immediately flashed back to the really incredibly unique world of Amelie. If you picture Audrey Tattoo on the poster, she's just so charming and so sweet. And her character very much is a force of optimism in her world. Right. And so there's a wonderful contrast with the emotional language of this piece of music and the character herself. It seems to, like many of the great musical examples we've touched on in the past, it seems to suggest something that's deeper, that's beyond what's included in the film itself.
1: Yeah, it gives you a glimpse into the character's psyche and their emotional state, even if it's not something that they wear on their sleeve. What I particularly love about that duality of Amelie as a character, you know, the difference between what other people see and what she feels on the inside, it's actually represented often within the music itself, because harmonically and in terms of the nature of the melody, it's this descending idea, it's very longing and kind of tragic, but since it's so often presented with this accordion-led chamber on Ensemble in toy piano and all these very cute childlike. I guess you could say musical sounds It represents that dual nature, you know if this was with a string orchestra in a slower tempo or even just solo piano you definitely feel almost a more melodramatic sense of the melody in that emotion. But I think what's fitting is human beings are more complex than that. And we feel, as Spock says, multiple motions simultaneously. Sorry,
0: was that Spock
1: or Bach? Spock. The, Either the one Vulcan. would have felt credible,
0: really. <laughs> Very true. Let's explore what's happening in this piece of music. We've mentioned that Jan Tiersen can be a very minimal composer. right? And in some ways, that reflects the minimalism of, say, uh, Philip Glass. But like Will mentioned, a lot of times with Jan Tiersen, it's this sort of melodic minimalism and this really right. appealing melodic minimalism.
1: Yeah, I think what's so attractive to me about this melody is the importance of every single note. It's a melody with great internal repetition and it's very motivic. The same little template is transposed when we move to the relative major key region. But basically, you have, yeah, da da da, yeah, and then this is the really important moment, da, da 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 da. Without that ornamented run down, it actually wouldn't feel like a melody. And what I think is so effective about it, it's a melodic choice that comes across maybe is like an instrumental flourish at the discretion of the performer like it's so improvised because we have this very simple melody with not even rhythms but very satisfying and and predictable rhythms and then we have this really fast run it gives you a real dynamic sense of a performer's character but it's an essential part of the melody because otherwise it would literally just be repeating the same thing two times and it would start to sound more like an ostinato or some kind of arpeggiated musical figure rather than a melody itself. For instance, I'm gonna sing you the same melody without that more busied run and you'll hear what I'm talking about. Da, 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 da. There's something very unfulfilling about that. I'm always inspired by melodies that are almost, they kind of prove their own existence as a melody by one note or a tiny little right. ornamental change. It's something that, frankly, we've discussed before on this podcast with Bernard Herman.
0: Absolutely. There's the popular phrase, the devil's in the details. Well, the beauty is certainly in the details, whether we're talking about melody or harmony or rhythm, really any of the fundamental components of music often it can be such a small moment that can really elevate a piece of music into something so meaningful and so lasting. Mm -hmm. It's funny thinking about Bernard Herrmann relative to this theme. If you're at all scratching your head with a little sense of familiarity, you could very well be thinking of the love theme from Vertigo. There's actually something slightly reminiscent here to that theme, and funnily enough, they're actually set in somewhat compatible keys, and the notes themselves are almost the exact same. Those first three key pitches are identical. With Herman, like
1: Tiersen, at the repeat of the motive, there's this lovely little decorative turn. A similar kind of idea, and I think that proves my point, that there are musical forces that are almost compelling both of these gentlemen to add something there. I I don't think it's cleverness. I really think it's something more emotionally necessary than that. But we wanted to point that out because, yeah, as Marty said, it's literally the exact same pitches. Herman's piece starts with a more striking chord uh, that emphasizes a certain dissonance. But the other thing that I love about that comparison is... As you mentioned, Jan Tiersen, this was his first time scoring for a film, but it almost somehow cements this as a film theme. Such a beautiful point. Rhythmically, the character of this melody is also that same concept of really subtle details that make it feel so satisfying. For instance, the rhythm of the opening phrase, da-da the use of that eighth note to lead us into our goal note is so important if you imagine if that was a quarter note and you would have a bit more square rhythms you would get no sense of the subdivision because what's accompanying this is basically just quarter notes and so by having that one little splash of the eighth note subdivision it gives it so much personality and to me that's where the dancey quality of this piece comes from and it gives it unique melodic character the same way that that ornamental color on the repeat does it's such a primal and pure character melody and even though it's presented in a way that sounds like more quote-unquote light music or French dance music and it kind of has this folk needle dropped kind of sound it really is a character theme in the way we're initially introduced to it in the film we're kind of expecting where everything is gonna go and it feels very inevitable to the point that you don't really have to think about it and it can do its function by communicating the emotional weight of the score
0: there's a really interesting design to the harmony of this theme as well. We certainly have a sense of listening that we're in some sort of minor tonality, perhaps. But what's interesting is if we conceive of the piece in A minor, we start on the IV chord. Right. In this case, D minor. And we somewhat resolve to A minor. Um, mm-hmm. But much like in the spirit of Herman, when we arrive at that A minor, our melody is emphasizing this ninth that needs to continue suspending downward. And I love what that suggests about the character of Amelie. You know, I don't think this would be an appropriate theme for Amelie at the very end of the movie. Right. This captures where she is at this point in her life. She has not quite fulfilled her destiny. Mm -hmm. She is not content, or maybe perhaps even following the full extent of her dreams. I feel like there's a sense of that in the harmony, that we're not starting on sort of a stable tonic. It's not overly suggesting that she is a tragic person, but that she's just in a sad place. And then if we call it a B section, as we move to the relative major, that again starts on the subdominant, starts on the four chord chord and then moves to the tonic. There's just the sense that she needs yet to move in a different direction to really fulfill her life.
1: The other thing that's so interesting that I think we're taking a little bit for granted is this really is one of the first themes that we focused on that operates completely within a functional, tonal, minor, major system. It may sound (laughs) kind of crazy, but the closest thing probably would have been the Raiders March, which still, you know, it uses a lot of more contemporary, unresolved suspensions and voicings that are still within the tonal realm, but describing its chord progression is a bit more complex and ultimately he does use the flat 6 chord and the flat 7 chord and things like that that you can't explain as easily. What's great about a piece like this is frankly it could have been written 200 years ago. It is that pure and even that ninth interval that Marty mentioned it is resolved. It's not sitting there kind of like a a jazz chord where it it could be more of a classical appoggiatura. Yeah exactly you can analyze it that way and the reason I bring that up is because Marty mentioned a Concept that I don't know if we've really talked about on this show a relative major. In tonal music, major keys and minor keys are related. Every minor key has a relative major key, and inversely, every major key has a relative minor key. For instance, C major's relative minor is A minor, A major's relative minor is F sharp minor. Anyways, Basically, the two key regions are related by a minor third. And the reason this is important is because really you have all the same pitches in C major that you do in A minor, so they can kind of work together very fluidly. And in this piece, as Marty mentioned, going from the four chord back to the one chord and analyzing the B section as going to the relative major is because that's sort of like a functional tonal way of looking at it. You could choose to examine the whole thing in A minor, but then that passage might not make... much sense. And we're
0: taking a little bit of liberty, I suppose, calling it a B section, it's maybe... Like the second half of the melody. Yeah, maybe more the second half of the phrase. It does feel that we're somewhat arriving towards stability when we finally land on that C major. But yet the melody has emphasized so many melancholy dissonances along the way. Sure. And melodically, it does not resolve to the tonic, to the note C. It's emphasizing the third of that C chord. So we can continue to sort of spin this melancholy web
1: absolutely and there's something about that chord progression that's very circular each harmonic moment really wants to lead into the next one in a way that can just kind of loop which is very effective for film music because oftentimes you have discrete amounts of time that you need to occupy and this chord progression even though it's very basic it is very iconic in Similarly, how we described with Herman, simply by voicing the chords, you almost get the theme. This melody has that level of purity to it, where when you just hear the chords themselves, you almost can hear the melody... Within it. And that circular nature is something that we hear in a lot of Jan Tiersen's music. And another aspect of this piece, and really we're going to see throughout this whole score that is so cyclical, is the rhythmic form a waltz. It's in 3 4 time. In fact, the title of this piece is Amelie's Waltz. And really, you could say a majority of the music in this movie is in that waltz form. That's such a good point, Will. Why don't we unpack that a little
0: and provide some musical context and perhaps historical context to
1: the French waltz or sort of the European waltz in general? as many of you may know the origins of the waltz like many musical forms come from dances and we also must remember that the waltz is by no means the very first dance in a triple meter we have the minuet which was a very famous dance a little bit of an older one but you know even Bach composed minuets so when we're talking about a waltz and I know sometimes this gets mislabeled there's some people that any piece in three four right. one two three one two three they call it a waltz but we want to try to get a little bit more specific about it because it's not just that it's in three. There seems to be certain patterns and traditions that we notice happen with waltzes over time. One of them has to do with harmonic motion. Typically there is only one harmony per bar. In this case there's two measures of the same chord before we get to a chord change, but that wasn't necessarily the case with some older dance forms in a triple meter where we would have harmonic changes on each beat. Another thing that's very characteristic Characteristic of the waltz is the accompanimental pattern, the right. kind of um pa pa aspect of it, if you will, which is usually characterized by on the first beat having the root tone of the chord, and on the second beat filling out the rest of the chord tones. If you think mm bump bump mm bump 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 that's kind of the idea of a waltz.
0: In the beginning of the episode, we mentioned how sometimes we can run into an almost cliched version of, say, a French waltz. And I think that might be because perhaps of any of the other classical forms, the waltz is fairly easy to imitate. And the sure. classic sort of harmonic figuration of the waltz isn't perhaps as challenging
1: to sort of implement as maybe right. some of the other forms. But in a sense, that's really what makes it so good and so compelling. And it's one of the reasons it's endured. And what's interesting is at the time of its creation, it was really looked down upon as not serious music. And the dance itself was considered um, highly sexual and a little bit controversial. We may laugh at that now, but I think the it was group- sort of a twerking dance of its time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's great about the use of waltzes musically now is it communicates the exact opposite. It's a very simple way of making music that maybe in terms of its harmony or of its overall structure would appear a bit more modern. It's a way of giving it a suit and tie and making it feel a little bit classical. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jan Tiersen chooses to write in that meter and that style so often is because, like we mentioned, he does have eclectic tastes and his music can range from sounding classical to sounding kind of like pop music to moments of sounding like jazz or old French folk music. And to kind of marry all those things together, having a consistent dance form kind of helps it all sit together, in my opinion.
0: there tends to be a certain rhythmic structure, maybe rhythmic convention to the classic waltz. And we're seeing a form of that here when looking at the melody, let's say. Right. And it's really emphasizing the 3-4 bar. Mm -hmm. We have that sense of sort of arriving measure to measure, and the melody really lands on every other bar in a really strong way. And all of that, I think, really helps to add an almost cultural weight to this piece of music. Amelie isn't only about the singular character of Amelie, but it's very much about the city that she lives in. It's very much about Paris. And the Paris of this film is almost a fairy tale Paris, sort of lost in time. The character of Amelie, you can tell she very much appreciates history. Her relationship Mm. with her neighbor, the Mr. Glass character. Right. Is one really rooted in her appreciation of Mm -hmm. cultural history. Right. And I really almost get a sense of that in this piece of music. But this is really only one aspect of, say, the rhythmic nature of the waltz and, say, the harmonic nature of the waltz. And luckily, Jan Tiersen does explore other musical aspects to really underscore this character. As we've mentioned, this is recognized as the central theme of Amelie, the waltz of Amelie. But there is actually... Another significant theme for <laughs> Amelie, which is also a waltz for Amelie. It's kind of like Amelie on a good day. Right. You know, we've talked before, say, with the Raiders' March it's almost as though there are
1: multiple pieces of music or multiple motifs for that character. Right, we love getting extra material. I would have been fine with just this one thing, but then you have another incredible melody. And selfishly with composers that I love, I'm, I'm always hoping for, you know, just as much great music as possible. Something I particularly appreciate in a film score. We've talked about how this is a very circular piece of music. In reality, it's also a very brief piece
0: of music. Jan Tiersen has a lot of fun decorating the accompaniment to the melody in some of the different versions, particularly the solo piano version features a lot of very lovely arpeggiated decoration of the tune. When we think of the waltz like will described particularly when we think of the associations we place on it nowadays it tends to be very much about regal dances let's say or about the ballroom mm, And there's right. a lovely charm like you said in the melody where it suggests something of a dance but this clearly is not a piece of romance and it's not right. a piece of love well,
1: and it's such a pure theme as we'll hear in some of the other waltzes or some of the other themes particularly the other waltz of Amelie is a bit more busy and much more dancey you could say this one it is so kind of quarter note heavy that it, it ends up feeling emotionally heavy as well
0: And while it is arguably the central theme of the film, it's important to recognize that it's really emphasizing one particular emotional state of the character in this film. Very true. And we really look forward to, in the weeks ahead, exploring some of the other musical expressions of this character and the Paris of this film. We've alluded to the sort of secondary theme of Amelie, the secondary waltz, and as we're going to see, that has an opportunity to emphasize some of what is not on display here and I think we are in for such a treat in the weeks ahead as we explore the unique music of this movie.
1: I'm really excited. It's fun to bring Underscore to new territory. You know, it was really fun when we were covering Back to the Future and we did that episode on all of the popular songs in it because it got us to explore and examine types of music that we hadn't done so far on this show. What I'm excited about looking at the score to Amelie is I think that it is absolutely a classic film score, if I can say that, but what's going to be so fun in the context of this podcast is that it's going to be such a departure from what we've done before and definitely from what we have planned after this movie in the weeks ahead.
0: We can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's our first excursion outside of the world of Hollywood movie music. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas you'd like to pass along, please feel
1: free to email us at
0: the underscore show at gmail.com.
1: We also appreciate all of you who've been leaving reviews. That really helps new listeners find the show. You can hear every episode of Underscore as well as find some neat supplementary material at our website, underscorepodcast.com. And you can follow us on all manner of social media, Facebook, YouTube. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show
0: the second underscore is
1: silent that's all for this week's episode everyone until next time and remember we listen because we love
0: take care (music) underscore is part of the Marcado brothers podcast network